This is an online meeting organised by the North London branch of Workers' Liberty. It's part of an ongoing series of political discussions on um, the state, crime, prisons and the police. Um, this is the third meeting in that series. The first two looked at um, Marxist analyses of the state and uh, the question of um, police and policing. And today we're going to be looking at the issue of drugs and the criminalisation and possible legalisation thereof. So our speaker is Stuart Jordan, who's a mental health worker and a member of Workers' Liberty. Okay, thanks. Thanks, thanks very much for inviting me to speak. Um, so uh, this is about legalising drugs and um, I just thought I'd start with a sort of show of hands of um, is who, well, who's in favour of legalising all drugs and, uh, you know, whatever, with whatever sort of regulation. Yeah, I can, all right. And who isn't? And who isn't sure? Okay. All right. Um, I was going to, uh, I mean, the argument is, um, I think fairly straightforward on just basic kind of liberal ground. Um, it's victims' crime, harm reduction. Um, those arguments, I think, are well rehearsed and well known. Um, I thought what would probably be more interesting is to do a kind of history of drug use um, and and prohibition, which is a very recent um, phenomenon. Um, I'm going to talk about a bit about addiction um, and alcohol. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the psychedelic renaissance. My background is a, as a mental health nurse, so I come across um, issues with drugs quite a lot and, and addiction. And um, I guess I've got a kind of professional interest in altered states of consciousness. Um, I'm also a kind of an um, observer, although not an active an interested observer, but not a uh, kind of active participant in the psychedelic scene, um, and, and more on that later. So a kind of brief history, whistle-stop tour of drug use. Drug use is um, like in incredibly ancient. It's one of the most um, ubiquitous things about uh, all human cultures and civilizations. There's thoughts that um, the use of uh, recreational drugs is, uh, it could be even pre-human. There's evidence of animals that take uh, sort of mind-altering plants and, and uh, funguses, fungi. Uh, the famous uh, thing is reindeers getting high on psilocybin mushrooms. And there's a uh, hunter-gatherer tribes in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in northern Russia who uh, have this relationship with the mushroom with, and with the reindeer and uh, it's part of their kind of religious observance. Uh, some of the, some of the uh, holy people drink the urine of reindeers because uh, psilocybin isn't properly metabolized by by the reindeer body, and uh, and they they uh, use that in their as a as kind of religious sacrament, which gives a whole sort of different take on um, Father Christmas and uh, and flying reindeers. Um, 
so this is there's there's this seems to be a kind of very kind of deep human need uh for um cha changing your like brain chemistry experiencing uh different states of, of consciousness um we know from um, anthropological recent anthropological research that uh taking a variety of different substances is part of um the culture in hunter-gatherer societies um and people will be familiar that with um the different uh, mushrooms and uh substances that have come out of that research especially in the 60s with um, people going to um, the amazon and making contact with uh uh, hunter-gatherer societies and partaking of their um, their drugs, um, and that's of interest, I think, to us as Marxists. I mean, the interest in these type of societies is, is goes back to Marx and Engels. Um, Marx uh, Engels describes uh, this period of, of human civilization as savagery, and uh, and says that. This is this is a time of primitive communism. Things are shared equally. There's no such thing as class societies or hierarchies. Now, more recent anthropological research than Engels had access to shows that these hunter-gatherer societies are aggressively egalitarian. They have all sorts of um, cultural and social rules in order to stop anybody asserting uh, the kind of will over the collective and things are shared and and you know the poor the not the poor the the the, the sick the elderly the young are looked after in common and that goes you know wherever you look in the world wherever you find these types of um societies um you'll find this aggressive egalitarianism and um Recent research has shown that also extraordinary low levels of stress and mental distress. Um, so that, that's, I think that is something of interest. This is, this, this is the form of human civilization that has existed for 95% of the time that human beings have been human beings. 90, you know, we've been anatomically human for about 200,000 years. And for 95% of that time, this is how we lived. So I think that's of interest. With the start of settled agriculture, you get a change in drug use. That it's possible that alcohol use actually goes back to um, like the eating of fermented fruit. And there's some evidence that apes kind of identify the smell of fermented fruit. And that's how, um, and it sort of speeds up their um, sort of um, gathering of fruit. Um, so it might be that alcohol use is also pre-human, but to, develop, to, 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 to produce alcohol on, um, on any kind of scale, you need to settle the agriculture and to be able to ferment um, uh, crops. So this is kind of strange relationship, I think, um, with um, um, alcohol and um, 
class society. Settled agriculture is the start of class societies where certain people is where, where you get the um, development of private property as people stay on the land and some people produce more than others and then can wield power over others um, often, uh, and, and start to develop forms of organised violence. Um, and, and you get the start of um, uh, sort of state forms. Um, and, and drug use continues. Um, the ancient world, um, opium use and, and cannabis use was very widespread. You could pick it up in any marketplace in um, ancient Rome. Um, and the sort of global drugs trade, uh, we have evidence of it going back at least to uh, 1000 BC. Um, alcohol really gets a kind of a boost um, with Christianity. The Bible is a fantastic marketing tool for booze. I think wine is mentioned in the Bible as much as, you know, it's one of the most sort of common words in the Bible. It's mentioned as much as sin. Um, and alcohol, obviously, is a central um, sacrament of Christianity. Um, uh, so you get this, um, so certainly in um, Christendom, alcohol becomes a kind of drug of choice. And um, with the development of capitalism and imperialism, that spreads um, throughout the world, although it's, it's, it's well known in other parts of the world as well. Um, Sort of fast forwarding to to modern times, um, there was there's uh, you get uh, you get a development. So with with the development of imperialism, um, drugs are brought back from um, other countries, and um, uh, you also have the sort of development of modern chemistry as capitalism develops. Um, so drugs like uh, cocaine and, and heroin are, are sort of extracted from their, their plant forms and started to be used in modern medicine and started to be um, used recreationally as well. And famously, you could, you know, you could go down, to, you, could, you could go to Harrods and, and pick up um, you know, a bag of coke and, um, and, a, bag of, uh, and a bag of weed back in the day um, these things uh, so prohibition starts in earnest um, in uh, the sort of turn of the century um, you get laws out outlawing um, uh, heroin cocaine um, cocaine is actually outlawed in um, well in, in the states it's outlawed um, in explicitly racist terms and there's a whole history of prohibition and, um, and its connections to uh, racism that, that is, you know, perhaps something for discussion. Um, but uh, the, main, the main prohibitions come in um, as a result of heavy drug use by soldiers in the First World War. Um, and, then, and then you get a second wave of prohibition in the 60s. In response to um, 
the kind of widespread use of LSD and other psychedelics. Um, I'll just say this is um, a quote from um, from an aide to Nixon, a guy called John Ehrlichman, um, who explains a bit of the logic of prohibition of the late 60s. He says, um, you want to know what it's really about? The Nixon campaign in 68 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and criminalise them both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, vilify them night and night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. So I think that there's an interesting insight there into the kind of function that prohibition has as a as a form of um, social control, not only in the kind of indirect way of, of, of controlling how people alter their minds, but also in very in a very direct and violent way, in the way it gives the state access to and an excuse, if you like, to um, sort of invade um, on on dissidents and um, and. Uh, people they want to shut down. Um, so that's prohibition, obviously there's been recent stuff um, around legalizing cannabis and there's a, there's a kind of historic process being played out there. Um, the UK is increasingly becoming um, an unusual place in the world and that cannabis hasn't been somewhat decriminalized. I want to talk a bit about addiction um, what the effect of prohibition is it's left three drugs um, available for common consumption um, or one of the effects is, is that and, and, and two of them aren't really even mind-altering tobacco and um, caffeine don't really do very much for you I mean the most you get from I mean you, you know ca caffeine will wake you up a little bit um, but the most uh, sort of psychoactive effect you get is um relief from your addiction to those substances and and the third is obviously alcohol which is very um sort of mind altering uh but um also very addictive so to so say the three kind of drugs of choice in in um uh, our period of um capitalism are addictive substances um, and there's a mass industry lobby behind that uh, which works hard to um, make sure that they're the only um, you know that the, the laws and prohibitions stay in place um, so I think it's useful to separate out uh, the kind of drugs of um, habit and abuse from what I might call um, from psychedelics I mean, they all get lumped in together with prohibition, but they're actually very, very different substances. Um, the, uh, the drugs of addiction, cocaine, heroin, alcohol, uh, crystal meth, might lump, um, amphetamines in there. Then you have a kind of gray area in between of um, ecstasy, ketamine, 
cannabis, and then you have what's recently been called the psychedelics, which means kind of mind um, mind expanders, or I forget the direct translation, but uh, LSD, DMT, uh, mescaline, psilocybin mushrooms, and similar. Um, now, the, the latter category just aren't, you can't get addicted to them. Um, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to take them like habitually. Um, most people who take them are, are slightly frightened of them. The experiences they have aren't exactly enjoyable. They're more um, challenging. Although there's obviously moments of enjoyment and, and euphoria along with it. But you won't go into any addiction clinic in anywhere in the world and find someone addicted to magic mushrooms or LSD or even um, ecstasy. Um, they, aren't, um, they aren't habit forming. Um, the, other, the other substances, the, the first list, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, they are habit forming. They, they are, um, they, they, they they trap people in um uh by their kind of by their addictive nature and um uh, although they also can be used recreationally and the extent to which um addiction is just i mean and, and nobody in the world of addictions regards these drugs as as having something inherent in them that makes them addictive we we treat um Addiction is actually a, it's a psychological um, issue. It's a mental health issue and it should be treated as such. Um, an interesting uh, bit of research that was done in the 50s on addiction, um, it's called Rat Park. You can Google it. It's better known now than it was in the 50s uh, when, when it, the research was um, not heavily advertised because most governments in the world were trying to crack on with um, various measures of prohibition. But what happened what, um, what happened in um, the Rat Park experiment is they were testing how addictive drugs were on rats. And they're finding that rats were generally very addicted to drugs like um, heroin and, and cocaine. And this scientist came along and thought, well, I'm gonna develop a rat paradise called Rat Park. It's gonna be full of lots of other rats. Uh, the rats can socialize and mate and have baby rats. Uh, there's lots of um, interesting um, colors and textures for them to play in. And I'm going to see if I can get those rats addicted to these drugs. Because previously all the rats have been rats in cages, as you'd imagine in the animal laboratory. And lo and behold, the result of Rat Park is all the rats didn't become addicted to um, these drugs. They had a lovely time and they were drug free so the next step was to take drugs that had already been in the cages and got addicted to other drugs and then put them into rat park and see if they rehabilitated and very very quickly they found that they did they were even sweetening the water which they were lacing with heroin and giving the rats that option to drink the rats who notoriously have sweet teeth the sweet tooth um, didn't drink the uh, heroin laced water um, so I think that's an interesting experiment obviously you can't you know extrapolate too wildly from human beings uh, from rats to human beings 
but I think that tells you something about the nature of addiction. It's a um, it's it's a manifestation of uh, mental distress. Um, there's been some interesting research done recently by um, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who have written a book called The Inner Level, and I strongly recommend people read it, which links addiction correlates addiction very very strongly to levels of income inequality they take different countries around the world and they show that um, income inequality um, is the main um, thing that uh, levels of addiction correlate to and the way that we think about addiction um, increasingly is that it's a form of compulsive pleasure seeking that isn't even just um, isn't even just uh, restricted to drug use. People now talk about um, being addicted to gambling, being addicted to um, uh, uh, shopping, being addicted to sex, being addicted to all sorts of things, video games. And it's, it's, um, it's about triggering uh, the pleasure rewards systems in the brain. Um, and there's obviously something about our culture that, promotes this idea of compulsive pleasure seeking that the highest you know thing in life is um, compulsive pleasure seeking and um and so i th um so i think the the issue of addiction is very very much tied up with um, consumer capitalism um i think the other thing about addiction especially when you think about addiction to um cigarettes and alcohol is that it's supported by very subtle uh, social messaging you know and, and we as marxists we are kind of attuned to trying to identify these subtle um forms of, of um uh sort of ide the ideological structures that surround us, the things that aren't obvious, but maintain certain forms of social organization, certain ideas about the way the world works, which aren't questioned. And I think if you think about how the smoking ban came in and the sort of huge shift in social attitudes towards smoking over the last uh, uh, 20 or so years, you can see that ideological um, the kind of ideological underpinnings of smoking addiction at work and like dissipate um, throughout our culture. So it used to be very, very common to see people smoking on television, for instance, and now you basically never see that. Um, there are all sorts of cues that were just embedded within our culture that would tell the smoker to go and have another cigarette. Um, and with alcohol, it's very, very much the same. I mean, the, the, the kind of cues that you get to go and have a drink are, are like everywhere. Like our culture is absolutely saturated um, with these cues. You know, um, like socialising, having a quiet night in to relax. Um, you know, it's Christmas. Warm you up on a cold winter's night. Cool you down on a nice summer's evening. You know, going to watch a sports match. There's there's all sorts of triggers that encourage you to go out um, 
drinking and um so i think that's perhaps an interesting thing to think about i want to i want to end just quickly to talk about the psychedelic renaissance and the and the kind of effect of that on um mental health treatments um so there's a there's a there's a social movement the state that is um it seems to be going places that uh, goes through academic research, um, the the medical world, through to um, people just taking these substances recreationally, and there's a renewed interest in the um, the psychedelics, which had a brief kind of uh, moment of flourishing after. Um, LSD was discovered in um, 1943, and then various drugs were brought back from um, the, the Amazon and places. Um, now, the interesting thing that what's known about that time is is um, people driving around on brightly coloured buses, um, people dancing at Woodstock Festival, um, Timothy Leary doing his um, Sort of experiments and um, all the rest of it. But what's less well known is that um, LSD and um, other substances were widely used in psychiatry. And, um, and that, that body of knowledge is, re is being rediscovered and um, government approved research is being done, especially in the United States. Um, and this could be a real game changer in terms of um, the treatment of mental illness. Um, that one of the leading sort of pioneers of this in in fifties was a guy called Stan Groff, who was a Czech psychoanalyst, and he treated thousands and thousands of patients with fairly high doses of LSD. And his um, findings, and he wrote loads of um, research papers on this. His findings were that you could basically map um, that each time you, you gave someone a trip and you gave them um, psychotherapy um, during during the the experience, um, they would uncover areas of trauma that they had previously been unable to access. And so, and and basically today we think that most mental illness stems from um, trauma, different forms of trauma, the experience through your life. And we all experience trauma throughout our lives. Um, and he said that uh, LSD is for the human psyche what um, the, the microscope is to chemistry, and what the telescope is to astronomy. He thought it was a way in which you could access parts of your brain, process through trauma and, um, and, and recover. And this research has been taken up. Um, the, the, most, uh, the most exciting development is the use of MDMA. One of the leading psychiatrists who's, who's leading the way in this, in this country is a guy called Ben Sessa. He says that um, uh, MDMA will do for mental illness what penicillin did for um, infectious diseases. It's, and, and it, and the model is basically that it allows you to um, access traumatic memories 
without a fear response um, and um, but with your kind of cognitive functions still intact what he says about it is that if you were to design a drug that would facilitate um, psychotherapy for trauma then it would be MDMA so the fact of prohibition has meant that this research has basically been a hold for 40, 50, 60 years. And, um, and we've developed one of the biggest, uh, you know, we're, we're now living in an epidemic of mental health crisis, which is caused by all sorts of social um, conditions. Our world is psychologically toxic. Um, but there's a kind of ray of hope, perhaps. This research is coming through. It's in phase three trials in the United States. If it, um, and it will almost certainly pass those trials. When it does, it will become available for use in clinics. And once it's available for use in clinics in America, it'll be available for use in clinics elsewhere. This is sort of five years' time. This will be um, revolutionising mental health treatment. Um, so I hope... That isn't really about legalising drugs, but I hope it provides a bit of food for thought um, on different aspects of, of the subject and lead to a, a fruitful discussion.